The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So my name is Tim. I'm uh, the junior high and local outreach pastor here. And um, I'm just excited to be able to share with you guys. We're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 2 this morning. So if you want to turn there, we will be looking at Luke chapter 2, uh, the missing king, sonship to sonship. So over the past four weeks, we've learned about Jesus as the promised king, the servant king, savior king, and the sent king. Today, we're going to focus our attention on the missing king, a very unique story in the Bible. Um, It's only found in the book of Luke, and uh, it's a very uh, powerful story as well as hopefully you'll see this morning. So let's look at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing to be in the group, they went a day's journey But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together. Dear God, we are so thankful to be here this morning to be reading your word, to be listening to your word. Lord, I pray that these, uh, this time together will be a time that your Holy Spirit speaks clearly, that these words that come out of my mouth will be the words that you desire for me to say so that people will hear, and not only hear, but most importantly, respond in action. Lord, bless us as we uh, study this today. In your name we pray. Amen. So today we're focusing on the missing king, kind of a in some ways, a humorous story for some of us, maybe not for Mary, but uh, for many of us who might find this interesting, what Jesus did. But we should know that in the second and third centuries that there were many legends that came about about the boy Jesus. Uh, there was a lot of things going on back then, and obviously Jesus who existed and did amazing things, there was a lot written outside of Scripture about who Jesus was and what he did. So when it comes to Scripture, it's important for us to know that the early church did great work and a lot of painstaking work to recognize and figure out uh, what books should be recognized as the Word of God. There were other writings written about Jesus, uh, but there was a lot of different tests that went through and, and things that had to match for these books to actually be included in the canon of Scripture. One of the reasons why uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are considered as part of the Gospels is that there are few stories about Jesus' childhood. 
in them. It makes it clear that the writers weren't interested in feeding into this mentality of, of curiosity and legend about Jesus' childhood. The other reason is that the Bible is real versus sensational. So oftentimes you see stories in the Bible that are included. I tell this to my students a lot. I say, look, we're going through the Bible, uh, the gospel project, and we, we go through three years from Genesis to Revelation. And we study these uh, books of the Bible, especially the Old Testament books, where there's some pretty messed up stuff happening. And some of it we have to like kind of clean up, not clean up, but we have to kind of figure out how to say it, uh, but for fifth or eighth graders. But there's some things in Scripture that you're like, wow, I can't believe it's in there. But to me, when, I, when I, I study those with my students, I help them try to walk through that idea that that to me shows me that Scripture is real. And it's not just a bunch of fairy tales and it's not just a bunch of stories to make you feel good because a lot of those stories in the Bible, they definitely don't make you feel good. They're weird, they're strange, there's lots of sin and, and depression and, and anger and hatred and all this stuff included in Scripture. And so for me, we realize that it's real. It's not a fairy tale. It's a story, but it's told not to be sensational. So these stories in the Bible, uh, that's no different here with this story. The one story which Luke does include about Jesus' childhood is somewhat reserved. Uh, it's, it's kind of a reserved story. It doesn't fill readers with sensational stories. Like, uh, like I imagine, like, if I was going to write some story, it would be about, like, uh, Jesus in a race. And he's in a race with four, uh, three other kids, and Jesus is, is losing the race, and all of a sudden, the three kids ahead of him are missing their feet, right? And, like, I'd write that one. And Jesus wins, right? So, like, more like a story, like, Somehow, prophetically and magically and, and, and a miracle all at once, Jesus shows up in the synagogue and in his little synagogue lunch sack, uh, out comes Chick-fil-A nuggets and waffle fries, right? Well, Chick-fil-A didn't exist back then, but he's Jesus, right? So we could like sensationalize some stories and some things that Jesus did and there were those things happening. There were those things being written, but it's important for us to get that this isn't one of those stories, the, gospel, the, the Gospels do not portray the boy Jesus uh, doing these things. Actually, the story reaches its climax and main point, not in a supernatural feat, but in the sentence, I must be about my father's business. That's the climax of the story. It's not some sensational feat that he did and some miracle, although those miracles are amazing that were recorded, but here it's a plain statement he makes. In addition, the Greek language of the story is also almost certainly a translation of the Semitic language of Palestine, which means that it was not created like many of the legends in Greek-speaking areas far removed from the land of eyewitnesses. So it's important for us to get that these legends often were created as they moved further and further geographically away from where Jesus did these things and where he grew up. So these legends developed over time. But instead, this language shows us as Jewish content and therefore probably originated in Palestine and the most likely source was the eyewitness Mary, Jesus' mom. So the story comes from a reliable source, I would say. So let's take a few moments uh, to observe some key aspects of the story. It's not three points and a cute little illustration. I don't have any index cards up here. No offense to Gary, but uh, there are a few points we're going to look at. 
And uh, as a matter of fact, pray for Gary. He's sick right now. He has, uh, I think, brought the flu home from New York City. So if you could pray for him, uh, that would be wonderful. I know he'd appreciate it. But we're going to look at some aspects of this story uh, that really jumped out at me as I was uh, looking into it this week and for a few weeks leading up to this. Verse 39 and 40 in chapter 2, they sum up Jesus' life from birth to 12 years. It was just a pretty much big summary here. And it basically says he grew and became strong. There's nothing else added in there. Uh, it'd be interesting if there was, but there's nothing added in there. He grew and became strong from birth. To, we, we know a little bit about him uh, as he got out of town uh, with Herod trying to kill all the little boys. But from there, we really don't know anything else. But we do know in verse 41 and 42, we see that Mary and Joseph were obedient, devout Jews. They weren't nominal believers. They weren't the type of people that came on Christmas and Easter. They weren't the type of people that would come once a month uh, and do their thing. But they were so devoted that they would travel every single year, which was uncommon for people living that far away. And they would travel every year to celebrate the Passover. So it's important for us to understand also what is the Passover? What is the feast of the Passover? If you look at Jewish history, you see that the Feast of Passover remembers what happened back when Jesus, or when back when the Israelites were enslaved to Egypt. And there was a series of ten plagues where Moses said, All right, here we go. We're going to do this. If you don't let the people go, all right, uh, uh, please make it stop. And then, and, you know, there were flies, there were boils, there was river water turned to blood. There was lots of crazy plagues going on. But the final one, the tenth plague, was where the firstborn son of the house, whoever was living in the house, the firstborn son would die if the blood wasn't put over the doorpost. And at that night, when the angel of death would come by and he would see the blood over the doorpost, he would pass by, pass over that house, and that young man would still be alive. And that started the release of the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. And so here is the Passover. Many years later, Mary and Joseph still celebrating here in this, in this passage. So we see that it was the 12th year. If you look at verse 41, 42, verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. This is the 12th year. It's the final year of preparation for a boy before he entered full participation in the religious life of the synagogue. Up until that time, his parents, especially his father, were teaching him the commandments of the law. But at the end of the 12th year, the child goes through this ceremony. And this ceremony formally introduces him into following the law, a son of the commandment, bar mitzvah is what it's called. And so this boy enters into that. So he's here on the doorstep of adulthood. It's a little different than what we see as 12 years old today, right? I got a 14-year-old girl now and an 11-year-old girl. I know some of you are feeling old over here, my former students now. But a 14-year-old girl, 11-year-old girl, I don't see them on the doorstep of getting married. And if I did, it would scare me to death and I'd probably be in the corner somewhere sucking my thumb and crying. But here in this passage, he is on the doorstep of manhood. It's kind of interesting that I was given this passage, being that my median age that I deal with on a week-to-week basis is 12. It's about 10 to 14 years old is, is what most of the 5th or 8th graders are. And so it's kind of interesting 
some observations we can make of 12-year-olds now, 12-year-old boys now, versus 12-year-old boys back then. Then, will I be working out in this field 10 or 12 hours today? Now, will my parents leave me alone long enough for me to collect the battle stars I need to level up in Fortnite? And the 12-year-old boys throw stuff at me. Uh, <clears throat> some of you adults are like, hey, I play Fortnite. Uh, so then, when, I, when am I going to finally get some sandals? I'm sick of walking around barefoot. Now, everyone else has the new Jordans. Why is it taking my parents so long to get me mine? And then which, uh, then, which of these girls in my village will my parents choose for me to marry? Why does my mom insist on me dressing up and going to this awkward cotillion dance? And all the cotillion moms are mad at me now, too. So, there are different things that happen culturally and historically for young people. And in this moment, this is Jesus on the doorstep of manhood. It's not him figuring out how much time he gets on his video game today. It's a different life. It's a different atmosphere. It's a different culture. But it's interesting that he stayed, it seems that he stayed behind on purpose. First, uh, you might say, oh, this is a disregard for his parents' time and feelings. But if you look at it, there's also an implicit faith that Mary and Joseph put in Jesus where they weren't checking up on him in this journey. It's like, well, they trusted the boy because it wasn't like, all right, Jesus, you stay right here. I got a son, uh, our youngest son, and he needs to stay right here. There's no doubt about it. Anybody knows Owen? He's got to stay here. We're not sure what's happening after that, so you stay here. But for Jesus, it was like, oh, no, I, it's okay. I trust, I trust you, obviously, to let you do your thing on this journey. If he had been an irresponsible child, his parents would never have gone a whole day without knowing his whereabouts. They trusted him, knew he had good judgment. This suggests that Jesus' motive in staying behind was not carelessness or disrespect. Evidently, he intentionally let them go in order to demonstrate something more forcefully, which we'll look at in a little bit. It was a custom back then to travel in large groups. And traveling in large groups, the women would go ahead, the children would be in the middle, playing tag, slapping each other, you know, things like that. Sometimes we spiritualize children back then and act like they were just walking you know, in line. I'm sure they were running around, right? And then the dad's behind, you know, uh, talking about different things, women catching up on what happened in the Passover. Did you hear what she said? I can't believe it. And then, you know, you got the men back here smacking the kids, you know, because they're running in their section. This is the men only, you know, get up there. And so you got different things happening. I know the stereotypes, I'm sorry. But so you got... Kids in the middle, you got women up ahead, you got men back here. So it wouldn't have been uncommon this entire day for husband and wife not to see each other and not to speak with one another. And some of you are like, when we go on trips, that's kind of how it is. We're right next to each other. <laughs> She's on her phone or sleeping, you know, whatever. So that's not uncommon for them. So for this to happen isn't like some morbid neglect uh, happening here with Jesus. It's It's... Man in the back, children in the middle, wives and, and moms and women up front. But imagine this scenario when they finally get to the place where they are supposed to be and they look at each other. You got them? Well, I don't got them. I thought you had them. Some parents probably thinking you've done this before, right? I've done this many times again, especially since Owen came along. 
in Walmart, in Target, you name it. You got, no, I have no idea where he is right now. Oh, wow. So, but imagine this though. Not only are you answering to each other, now you're answering to God. He's God's son. What, you lost God's son? What in the world is going on? The heaviness that exists in that moment is pretty powerful. That's an understatement. It's pretty powerful. So here he is. You got him? Um, I don't know. But it's important for us to get this straight. I've heard this compared sometimes in, in different things I've read and, and heard about this passage that they compare it to like losing your son in Walmart. You know, he's like five years old and he's lost. And like, oh no, what are we going to do? Or like you're out in the woods hiking and then all of a sudden your seven-year-old daughter wanders off. And I've heard it compared to that, but we've seen earlier that's not what's happening here. So it's important for us to understand historically here, he's on the doorstep of manhood, okay? It doesn't mean there's not distress. Don't get me wrong. There's still distress, and we'll see it here in Mary's voice. But it's important for us to get that it's not like losing a little four-year-old. But either way, it's a day's journey. You know, on the doorstep of manhood or not, he's still under their roof. So it's an entire day's journey that they didn't have this guy, Jesus, the Son of God. And so here they are, an entire day's journey, looking for him. They have to travel back a whole day. And then in verse 46, it shows after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers. So three days goes by. One day away, one day back. And even when they get back, it wasn't like Jesus was standing at the little gate, you know, saying, hey, I'm here. You know, (laughs) like, sorry. No, he's still not there. They had to search around the city. Where Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And back then, Jesus was a common name. So it wasn't like for us, have you seen Jesus in this room? Oh, yeah, he's right there. So it was, wasn't com- it was a common name. And so here he is. Did you see Jesus? You see him? And finally, where do they find him? They find him there in the temple. What was he doing? Look at verse 46 and 47. He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So this posture that Jesus took as the Son of God is an interesting one. He sat there, and he listened, and he asked questions. Now that's kind of interesting. I don't know about you, but if imagining yourself as the Son of God, you wouldn't be asking many questions. Definitely not listening to these guys. But instead, he chooses this posture. Now this past week, the Christmas celebration... Maybe many of you unwillingly or willingly showed up at family, you know, home gathering, you know, and you were either dragged there or you went there on purpose. Uh, But there were times when you went there to a gathering or something like that. And maybe if it was anything like I experienced growing up, it was a lot of talking and a lot of catching up, but it was just a lot of talking. People talking over each other. My family, we always talk over each other. It frustrates Candace, but it, it just happens. The Northeast, you know, we just talk, right? And there's a lot of talking going on, catching up, you know. Uh, I did this, I did that. My kids select whatever, you know. And this one's over here doing this. They're amazing. And it's just like, kind of like Brian Regan. He's, he's a, a comedian, one that I can recommend, one of the only ones. But uh, Brian Regan, he, he calls it the me monster. This is like me, me, me. You know, just like saying all about yourself. And there's not a lot of listening happening. All it is is just information. And some of you may be unique. 
uh, maybe way better than I am because I'm the chief of sinners right here. But some of you can listen really well and I applaud you and I want to learn from you. But in this situation, we see Jesus, he's listening. He's listening. He's asking questions. And we as a people, we're generally pretty bad at listening because we want to get our information out, our opinions or updates on things. And sometimes we have a problem just listening. I have so much to learn from Jesus here. Proverbs 1.5 is a great scripture. Throughout Proverbs, we see scriptures about listening and wisdom. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. A man of understanding will attain wise counsel. You guys want to be wise? You want to understand things? You want to follow this example that Jesus did? In this moment, he listened and he asked questions. So Maybe we can all learn something from Jesus in that moment. But... We also have to understand the thick irony here. What were they celebrating? What were they celebrating? Passover. They just finished celebrating, right? And we just discussed the fact that Passover was uh, a foreshadowing. This blood on the doorpost was a foreshadowing of the coming Redeemer, the coming Messiah. Everybody's excited about the coming Messiah. And guess what? The Messiah is sitting at their feet. He's 12 years old. And here he is, sitting there, asking questions and listening. Whoa. They're reading Scripture. They're reading things from God himself, talking about the Messiah. And they don't get the fact that he's sitting at their feet, listening and asking questions. If you fast forward 18 years, these same leaders, a lot of them, are going to be gnashing their teeth, wanting to crucify this young man. So here they are listening to this boy who is the Redeemer who they just celebrated. How crazy is that? It's so cool how God weaves this into this story and helps us to see the Redeemer for who he was even as a 12-year-old boy. So saying his parents were surprised, that doesn't do it justice. They show up. Three days. Surprised is not a good word. Astonished, much better word. Maybe words can't really do it justice of what Mary felt at that moment in Joseph. There have been many times in my life when I've heard my mom say, and maybe you know this statement, I can't believe you just did that. I can't believe you just did that. One that pops in my head during this winter season is uh, my friends and I, we used to like to throw snowballs at cars. I have to confess, we did. It wasn't a smart thing, but we did it, and sometimes it was fun. But at this time, it wasn't. I'll just fast forward. It ended up me getting clotheslined by a stranger in someone's yard with my back facing him on the ground, and uh, I ran back home uh, very, very scared. (laughs) So my mom didn't find out that day. Years later, she found out, and then she said, I can't believe you did that, right? And maybe many of you have those stories, but nothing, nothing tops this, I don't think. You've got some cool stories if it does. Three days, 12 years old, without his parents, and here she goes. Here's Mary. Man, she's distressed. She's upset. Verse 48, or verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed in his understanding and his answers, When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, 
Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Her words are pretty powerful here. And one thing that it helps me with, uh, I don't know about you, but I don't do a good job of picturing Jesus in a family. Maybe you're you know, better at visualizing that than I am, but I don't picture Jesus with a mom and dad. Although I know it's true. I know Mary and Joseph were his parents, but I don't really picture this loving time, and maybe it's because we don't have a lot of stories about Jesus as a kid, but where his mom just cared so deeply for him. She's in great distress, even at the doorstep of manhood. And she's so astonished that this would happen. So here we see them saying, look, we're in great distress. Jesus answers with a matter-of-fact question. But it's important for us to understand, in the Greek language that this was written in, this question in English sounds offensive. Sounds like Jesus was offensive to his mom. But in the Greek language, it wasn't like that. It wasn't written that way where uh, he was trying to be like a smart aleck or anything. It was just a statement, a question that he made. Why were you looking for me? So did they miss something? Should they have known? But he says, why were you looking for me in verse 48 or 49? Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. It's not the only time in Scripture that we see that people didn't understand what Jesus was saying, right? You got the disciples, they, they didn't understand. People around him, I have no idea what you're doing right now. And so here, it's the first time it's recorded in Scripture where Jesus identifies he has two loyalties. He has one to his mother and father, earthly mother and father, but this other loyalty is a greater loyalty, which is to his Heavenly Father, capital F. So it's important for us to see that. It's a distinguishing thing that he does here. So we see uh, John Piper says this, the main point of the whole passage probably lies in the contrast between your father, lowercase f, and my father, capital F. Mary says, your father and I have been searching for you. Jesus answered, you should have known I would be at the house of my father. In other words, Jesus has chosen this crucial stage in his life on the brink of manhood to tell his parents in an unforgettable way that he now knows who his real father is and what it means for his mission. Last time I got to speak on this stage, I talked about the uh, crucifixion, Jesus dying on the cross. And in those moments, we talked about how Jesus spoke to his mom from the cross and lovingly said to her, addressed her as woman. Not mommy or mother. Jesus made a distinction there that he is the son of God experiencing death, helping his mom cope with the death of her son, separating those two realities and helping her deal with this. But even when you go back even further to the water into wine situation we talked about that day, the water into wine is a similar one where she's like, hey, uh, uh, we're out of wine. Can you hook us up? Can we get some more of the good stuff, right? And what does he say to her? Woman, you know, it's not my time. It's not him being disrespectful. It's him helping her see there's a difference. I'm the son of God here. There's a difference here. And so it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic there happening with Mary and Jesus. But what does he say? I must be in my father's house. In my notes, I capitalized every letter of must. I must. He had this urgency. 
to be about his father's business. I must be in my father's house. Jesus recognized his sonship at an early age. He had a clear mission to do his father's business. He had a mission to do his father's business. So as you recognize yourself, possibly in this room, hopefully, to be a son or daughter of God, do you recognize what that means? As you sit here today, can you take this in and recognize what does that mean to you that you are a son or daughter of the Most High God? And what does that mean to your life in the coming year of 2019? A son or daughter of the Most High God? Well, hopefully, you answer the same way. What does it mean? To be about my father's business. What does that look like? Well, it's kind of interesting when we think about the coming year and resolutions. I looked up uh, the top resolutions of 2018. Maybe they're the same ones that will happen in 2019, most likely. Number one, eat better. Number two, exercise more. Number three, spend less, especially coming off Christmas. Number four, self-care, taking care of yourself. Number five, read more. And you say, hey, these aren't bad. No, they're not. But for what? What's the point? Why are you doing it? What's the reason for your resolution? What's the motivation behind it? Maybe for you, it's trying harder to be a better dad, mom, son, daughter, grandparent, boss, coworker, friend, teammate. Maybe it's for you, oh, I like this one, uh, to be a better version of yourself. Some of you are mad at me right now. I'm sorry. But let me tell you what a better version of yourself is. More evil. A better version of you is Evil times 10. A better version of you is more sin and more rejection of the Father. So maybe the, you, know, the, you want to clean it up a little. A better version of who God made you to be and who God calls you as his son or daughter. Let's do that maybe. But a better, better version of you. Oh, God help us, right? No. Just more sin, more evil, more more selfishness, more focus on eat better, exercise more, spend less, more of those things. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Eating good, that's great. Exercise, I love it. Love to play basketball, love to run around. I love to do that stuff. But for what? For what? What's the reason for your resolution? All these resolutions, they seem to fall short. They deal with the temporary, the fading away stuff of life. But instead, how about a shift? How about eternal resolutions that affect the physical? Eternal resolutions that affect the spiritual and the emotional. But they're more eternal resolutions that trickle down to the other areas of your life that make you a better friend, that make you a better uh, husband or wife, that transform you into someone that cares about the environment, that cares about eating well, that cares about loving others, but it's an eternal resolution. Maybe adopt the following command of Jesus for 2019 and every stinking year until you die or God calls you home. Adopt this one. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How about that for a resolution? How about that for something to launch you into 2019? John Piper, he he helps us, he goes on to say, to help us understand the rest of the story, it seems to me the main teaching of the passage is that Jesus now recognizes his unique sonship to God, that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over the closest family ties. He must follow his calling even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution knowing that it would cause discord, pain, trouble, rejection? (laughs) Oh, give me that resolution. But look here. This is what he's saying. He's like, look, resolving to live for God is going to do that to you this coming year. It's It's not a question. It will happen. But are we willing to be resolved to follow that way? To love God that way? To love others that way? And then 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12 gives us a great passage to meditate on for 2019. Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you, As evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love others. And then go about doing things with the power of the Holy Spirit that helps people see that you have been transformed and that you are not the person you once were that you've been transformed by God. And we know what they do in turn. Instead of it being about you and your resolutions and getting a pat on the back, instead, you know what they do? I can't believe that they are like that. They used to be like this. Now they're like this. And there's nothing that can explain it except God himself. And so people turn around and glorify God because of you and not glorify you because of you. They glorify God because of what you've done. Maybe you're in a situation where you've not yet recognized Jesus as the Son of God. You haven't embraced Jesus as King and you're struggling. There's no better time than to start a new year to recognize that you can do, can't do it on your own. That no, I'll do it better this year mentality will help. Recognize today that Jesus is your King. And he wants to have a relationship with you. There's no better day than today. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to finish with a song. And this song will be a time for you to take the time to commit this coming year, 2019, to loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with loving others as yourself, and with living for God so that Your actions will bring glory to God. So during this time, as you guys go ahead and stand together, I want this time to be a time of reflection. Time of reflection as you stand and as you sing.
to pray and talk to God. Maybe confess some things from 2018. Things that were worthless. Things that were a big fat waste of time. That you need to confess to God. Maybe relationships that you damaged or hurt. That you need to confess to God from 2018. Maybe some things that you just need to get right because you haven't been looking at things in the right perspective. But I really want you to use this time for confession, meditation, and resolving to live for God in 2019. And lastly, if you don't know Jesus, this can be your time. This can be your time to come to Jesus and trust him as your Savior and stop trusting in your own power and your own good works and trust in the risen King who paid it all for you. I'm going to be down front. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. Feel free to use this front as an altar or you can stay where you're at and pray. But as we sing together, just make it a prayer time between you and God.
God, uh, we are thankful. Thankful that you sent your son. Sent your son as a baby to live a sinless life. To eventually die on the cross for our sins. To pay the price we couldn't pay on our own. To give us new life. Rose again. Because of that power, we have the power to go out this coming year to love you with our heart, soul, and mind, to love others as ourselves, to give of our time, our energy, to point people to you. Pray that that will be our goal this coming year. We thank you for your love for us. Pray that as we go out, we will live for you and love others. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. You're dismissed.